former President Theodore Roosevelt was in exile. It was self-imposed. It was him doing the kinds of things he loved, hunting animals in the wild and being out in nature. And it was as far away from the United States as he could get. He was on safari in Africa, having handed over the presidency that could have been his for another four years to William Howard Taft. His close circle of political intimates suggested that he could come back in 1912 and have another term. Revolutions don't go backward, Teddy told them. Always a keen visionary, he could tell, long before most of America's wise men, that the country was moving away from him in the direction of finance and economics and business. There were things he didn't understand, even down to the penny. Every morning, Edie puts $20 in my pocket, he said about his approach to personal finance. And to save my life, I can never tell her afterward what I did with it. He was leaving a country where the ambition of most Americans was to be a captain of industry, not a rough rider. Commerce for Teddy, especially in the age of Rockefeller, Carnegie, and other robber barons of the Gilded Age, lacked moral clarity and purpose, and he believed America was now fully open for business. On his way out the door, Teddy told Archie Butt, his personal guard, that his had been an administration of ideals. Having already given up the presidency by way of his 1904 election night pledge not to run again, he was really just making excuses. He needed to get away from his successor, to whom he couldn't help offering advice. About the way the public perceived Taft's penchant for golf, his midday naps, and the appearance that if he moved at all, it was slow. That he should smile more and get out among the people instead of cozying up to political cronies. Lacking aggression, all Taft wanted was to be loved. He was everybody's favorite fat uncle from childhood, dispensing coins and lollipops. The day after his decisive election, Taft went to play golf. One of his first statements to reporters as president-elect was, I really did some great work at sleeping last night. That quick, it became clear that this would be no energetic, proactive presidential administration. Even the first ladies evidenced the change. Helen Taft, having been prepared for years to take over the White House, announced changes that were in direct opposition to the protocols of Edith Roosevelt. Liveried footmen instead of the usual ushers, and no more elaborate entertaining. Most importantly, she urged her docile husband to do everything he could to get out of Theodore Roosevelt's broad shadow. Teddy had imagined Taft to be a pliable fellow who would, even from inertia, continue his policies. This was a serious miscalculation. Taft was loose dough, but the baker in charge of the kitchen was Helen, not Teddy. Even though Teddy had anointed Taft president, he couldn't trust himself to stick around and watch what happened next. If I am where they can't get at me, and where I cannot hear what is going on, I cannot be supposed to wish to interfere with the methods of my successor, Teddy said. He wasn't just trying to counteract an impression of the press or the public. He was also using distance and silence to keep himself out of it. The battle between impulsive action and strategic restraint was one he would fight his entire life. Like a compulsive eater, when it came to politics, the only thing that worked was for Teddy to stay completely out of the kitchen. He had to preoccupy himself with both intellectual study and physical danger. His expedition was underwritten by the Smithsonian, so he was being paid to analyze African flora and mammals and send back exhibits and write scientific papers. He was also, being Teddy, going to kill some big scary animals before they got a chance to kill him. He took his 19-year-old son Kermit with him, believing that the boy who was an avid reader and photographer needed some toughening up. Among the four Roosevelt sons, Kermit was more like his mother than his father, 
Edith believed Kermit was fragile compared to her other boys, but was certain that her husband would protect him. Along with her pre-expedition warning about the family financial troubles, which this trip was supposed to solve, Edith likely committed Teddy to an unbreachable contract to return Kermit intact to his mother. The former president took with him a letter from the current one that said, When I am addressed as Mr. President, I turn to see whether you are not at my elbow. I want you to know that I do nothing in the executive office without considering what you would do under the same circumstances. That was all the comfort Teddy was going to get as he left America in Taft's hands. The former president, now insisting he be addressed as Colonel, banned the press from his Africa trip, which was unlike him. But he didn't want his every step, every missed shot, every gleeful slaughter captured on camera and headlined back in the States for a public that still adored him. He also wanted to make certain, like most great historical actors, that he was the only one telling his story. The hunt went well, and Teddy wrote articles to send back to his publishers. Anytime he approached Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, he felt the temptation to talk to reporters. Despite his pose of privacy, he remains irredeemably a public figure, obsessed with his own image, half wanting to confide in those he holds at bay. He received his first mail from the States two months into his trip, full of reports of Taft's ineptitude and the fracturing of the Republican Party. Teddy turned away from it, telling Henry Cabot Lodge, I am now eating and drinking nothing but my African expedition. But before long, he dictated a letter to Henry White, dismissed by President Taft as ambassador to France, saying that Taft's promise to keep White in place was not a promise any more than my statement that I would not run for president was a promise. Hold on. What? Five months into the safari, a letter came from Henry Cabot Lodge telling Teddy that there is a constantly growing thought of you and your return to the presidency. Teddy replied that all he wanted to do was finish his book, tour Europe with his family, and return home a mere private citizen. He then said, At present, it does not seem to me that it would be wise, from any side, for me to be a candidate. But that can wait. At present? Uh-oh. Presidential Retirement Safety Tip Number 257. If you are fighting your impulses and ambition to keep yourself from running for president in an election you are pretty sure you can win, do not go on a European tour where you will be treated like a visiting head of state by adoring crowds and European rulers. A year after his departure from the White House, Theodore Roosevelt went on a European tour where he was treated like a visiting head of state by adoring crowds and European rulers. After months of wandering through the African bush and chasing down marauding beasts, he was tanned and fit and in nearly the best shape of his life. As he moved back into civilization, his mail caught up with him, full of lurid reports of the betrayal of his legacy by his successor and the increasing strength of the Democratic Party. His chief forester and the driving force behind Teddy's conservation agenda, Gifford Pinchot, had been dismissed by Taft, who was allowing the Congress and his administration to fall under the sway of special interests. We have fallen back down the hill you have led us up, Pinchot wrote. Other correspondents pressured Teddy to run for mayor of New York or some other office from which he could launch a 1912 presidential campaign. My political career is ended, Teddy sent back. He met with the Pope in Rome and was the guest of honor at a state dinner hosted by King Victor Emmanuel III of Italy. He met with Emperor Franz Joseph of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in Vienna, where he was hailed as the embodiment of the present and future by the emperor. Everywhere he went, Teddy tried to convince his hosts 
backed up by throngs of wild fans and vast parades, that he was no longer President of the United States, but the non-Republican mind, it seemed, could not conceive of sovereignty as finite. The worst thing that could happen now would be for Teddy to start seeing things their way. Hopefully, things would start to calm down once Teddy got to Paris. By the time Roosevelt reached Paris, it was apparent that he was the most famous man in the world. The kings and emperors he had met with so far, with more to come, might have been better known in upper-level European society, but Roosevelt was the hero of the people. When he appears, the windows shake from three miles around, one correspondent wrote. It was at the Sorbonne in Paris where Teddy made his famous Man in the Arena speech. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without shortcoming, but who actually strives to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. This exhausting run-on sentence says more about Theodore Roosevelt than the hundreds of thousands of pages of biography that have been written of him since. And if you pay close attention, it also says quite a lot about President William Howard Taft. The two were on a collision course. Speaking of collision courses, the former president kept going on his European tour, from France to Belgium to Germany, where he saw clear evidence of Germany's overwhelming military buildup even before he got to the border. German dreadnoughts and cruisers were at sea as he passed through what he called the easily conquerable lands of Belgium, Holland, Denmark, and Norway, where he met the mild and affable rulers of each country. Germany was clearly winning the naval arms race. The crowds lined up to greet him in Germany were smaller and less enthusiastic. To them, Theodore Roosevelt represented a republic of inferior culture, distant, disorganized, racially inchoate. But he got along great with Kaiser Wilhelm II. The two men looked alike and spoke alike and had great fun reviewing the troops, which made it seem like Germany was way ahead in that military sphere as well. Roosevelt watched the maneuvers of the German forces and saw trouble ahead for any potential adversaries. A picture was taken of the two of them, facing each other on their horses, Teddy's clenched fists striking the air before him as he spoke to the Kaiser. Wilhelm later sent him the photo, which he had himself captioned, the Colonel of the Rough Riders, lecturing the chief of the German army. Roosevelt had felt it necessary to warn the Kaiser that a war between Germany and Britain would be catastrophic. Wilhelm agreed, saying, I adore England. I guess we'll just have to see about that. King Edward VII of England died during this visit, and President Taft asked Roosevelt to act as a special ambassador and attend the funeral as his representative. Back in London, he was assigned a royal carriage, a military attaché, two British aides-de-camp, six grenadier guards, and a bugler to herald him everywhere he went as if he was a knight of the round table. He made calls at all the embassies and royal houses of London. He met with the new king, George V, as well as many of the monarchs he had already seen on his trip so far. He nearly lost his voice and canceled his engagements resting at the residence provided for him before the funeral. His peace and quiet was interrupted by the British footman calling from the stairwell, 
The king of Norway is below, sir. Confound these kings, Roosevelt said. Will they never let me alone? He also met up with his eldest daughter, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, married to a Cincinnati congressman who was a close associate of President Taft. She brought with her the news that her father's return to the United States was going to cause a crisis of leadership in the Republican Party. At all costs, he must stay aloof from politics, unless in his heart he wanted to be president again. Alice certainly wanted that. She had buried a voodoo doll in the White House garden before her father left for the last time, leaving an underground curse for the Taft administration. She said she would dig it up and get rid of it once her father was president again. After the funeral processions and state functions that seemed to go on without end, where Roosevelt was accosted by every prince and king of Europe with an axe to grind, I felt if I met another king I should bite him, Roosevelt griped after one of these majestic dinners. He was granted the freedom of the city of London. This ancient set of privileges gave him the right to herd sheep across London Bridge, to carry a naked sword in public, and if he was executed by hanging, a silken rope would be used instead of the usual hemp. Teddy came very close to needing that last perk when he made a speech at Guildhall. He lectured the British on their occupation of Egypt, where he had recently visited. He said, now either you have the right to be in Egypt or you do not. Either it is or is not your duty to establish and keep order. If you feel that you have not the right to be in Egypt, if you do not wish to establish and keep order there, why then by all means, get out of Egypt. At that, former British Prime Minister Arthur Balfour said, I just love that man. The British press lost their minds, deeply offended that a foreigner, no matter his esteem, should lecture them about their policies. The London Times said that Teddy had taken freedom of the city too far. Maybe he should have stuck to running some sheep across the bridge, waving his unsheathed sword. Perhaps the time had come for Theodore Roosevelt to go home. One of Edith Roosevelt's favorite quotations was from the story of Troilus. Life is short. Let us spend it together. She wanted nothing more than to live out her days with her husband at Sagamore Hill. Grandchildren were on the way, and she felt she had given enough of Teddy to the demands of public life. But having watched him with the princes and crowds of Europe, she did not have the sense that he was a spent force. Neither did the people of New York. When his ship arrived, over a million people were waiting to see him, including his fifth cousin Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his wife Eleanor, Teddy's niece. When Teddy stepped back on his native soil for the first time in over a year, the roar of the crowd, deafening, brought him to tears. He was paraded five miles uptown, deluged in ticker tape and confetti. People on the sidewalks called, Our Next President, which was met with loud applause. Archie Butt, now working for President Taft, but who had come to see his old boss's return, said, To me, he had ceased to be an American, but had become a world citizen. He is bigger, broader, capable of greater good or greater evil, I don't know which, than when he left. And he is in splendid health and has a long time to live. The Colorado Springs Gazette said, Never before in the history of America has a private citizen possessed the power which Mr. Roosevelt now holds. A Philadelphia paper opined that he could win a third term in 1912, even if he ran as a Democrat. These assessments did not bode well for Archie's current employer. The papers didn't spare Taft any sympathy. Never mind, Mr. Taft, the Chicago Daily News wrote, when you are an ex-president, you can be a celebrity yourself. Finally, back home at Oyster Bay in 1910, the world was Teddy's oyster, and the next move was his. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some incidents where fans of the show take me to task about train wrecks I haven't talked about, and some that I have. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash histories train wrecks, and thank you so much. If you think Teddy Roosevelt should have skipped his European tour, or actually tried running some sheep across London Bridge, you can Twitter to at History's Train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to History's Trainwrecks. If there's a historical trainwreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the History's Trainwrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, we'll take a break from Teddy Roosevelt's conflicted musings about a triumphant return to power in 1912 and head to the Civil War siege of Petersburg in 1864. General Grant's attempt to seize the strategically important city had failed, and both sides settled into a stalemate of trench warfare. Major General Ambrose Burnside, who had been appointed by President Lincoln to replace George McClellan as commander of the Army of the Potomac two years before, needed to revive his military reputation. He had performed badly at the Battle of Fredericksburg in 1863 and the Overland Campaign of 1864 and was looking for an opportunity to get back into Lincoln and Grant's good graces. His solution? He was going to blow some stuff up. Stay tuned for Fire in the Hole. The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. The History of North America podcast series is an incredible historical adventure that chronicles the thrilling, action-packed tale of a continent. I invite you to come along for the ride.